Hello and welcome back to the Clifford Chance Pensions podcast. We're very excited to be back with the second episode of our new podcast to go hand in hand with our regular UK Pensions update newsletter. The intention today is to give you a snapshot of the headline points covered in the latest edition. So your speakers today will be me, Rebecca Trapp, me, Louise Oliver, and me, Savannah Dunian, all associates in the Clifford Chance Pensions team. Thanks for the introduction, Rebecca. It's exciting to be underway with the second podcast in our series. So, what's on the agenda for today? Well, after the flurry of activity following the Chancellor's Mansion House speech, the summer has been a bit quieter. I suspect while the industry digests all the announcements flowing from that, and of course because of Parliament's summer recess. There have, however, been a few interesting pensions judgments handed down in the last couple of months. And in today's podcast, we thought it'd be helpful to focus on these. Uh, So we've seen some interesting cases come both before the High Court and also, very interestingly, the Upper Tribunal, um, which recently upheld the pensions regulator's decision to issue a contribution notice. And that's quite unusual, really. I mean, I recall that there have only been a few cases where a pensions contribution notice has um, proceeded to be issued. Most are either threatened or they end up being withdrawn by the regulator following a settlement. Exactly. And actually, a settlement did happen in this case, too. Um, Originally, the regulator was pursuing two individuals, um, but they reached a settlement with one of the individuals before the appeal progressed. So can you tell us exactly what happened in this case, then? Yes, sure. So essentially, the target of the contribution notice was an individual, um, and he'd been a director of the sponsoring employer, which then ultimately went into liquidation. Um, The sponsor's parent company had owned shares in a joint venture, and over time the shares were sold off and then the proceeds from those sales were sent to offshore entities. Um, And then in 2014, the last um, bout of shares in the JV were sold and the proceeds, which was totalling just shy of four million, uh, were paid out directly to a Jersey registered company, which was a nominee company for the target individual's nephew. And that payment was made pursuant to an agreement that had been entered into in 2012 between the scheme's employer um, and the the individual had been had signed the documentation on the employer's behalf and then the parent company and the individual acting for the parent company was the uh, other target's nephew. Thanks Louise. I understand that ultimately the upper tribunal decided that the sealed detriment test had been met here for issuing a contribution notice the tune of £1,875,403, being around 50% of the sum initially sought against the joint targets, was actually reasonable. But there were some really interesting points coming out of the decision, weren't there? Yes, that's right. So I think the first interesting point to flag is that the Upper Tribunal agreed with the regulators' view that the 2012 agreement had cleared the path for the extraction of value from the JV, and then the 2014 payment had then constituted the actual extraction of value. So the Upper Tribunal concluded that those acts together amounted to a series of acts for the purposes of the statutory test. Yeah, and I think another really interesting point was how the Upper Tribunal considered the reasonableness test. So here, it applied the principles from the Carrington Wire case, pretty much being that it was right for the regulator to consider not just a target's current financial position, but how they ended up there. So this is the idea that actually it's reasonable to impose a contribution notice for a number of reasons. So looking at it more in the round... 
Um, even though the target had argued that it wouldn't be reasonable because at this point in time, he had limited financial resources and he hadn't benefited directly from that 2014 payment. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, the target's argument didn't quite succeed and he pleaded very hard on the financial hardship um, point. But ultimately, the tribunal found that the individual had been wealthy for a long time during his career prior to that. And even though that might no longer be the case, he hadn't provided strong evidence to actually demonstrate his current financial position. Uh, another interesting twist was that there was a religious principle followed by the individual and his family, um, which he relied on quite heavily. And that principle suggested that the family would step in to provide financial support to help him pay um, a debt, so a contribution notice, um, if he couldn't afford to himself. I think the takeaway point on this was crucially that the tribunal was clear that there was nothing to suggest that an argument of financial hardship should be given stronger weight than other factors. So it's just one factor to be considered when assessing the reasonableness test. And I think that's actually really interesting because, you know, we often say, and I think the general view is that the regulator would typically look for someone with deep pockets. So, you know, ultimately what they're looking for here is someone with the resources to pay a contribution notice. Um, but again, I suppose it highlights here that that it's not enough for a target just to say they've been they're you know financially hard up at the moment. Um, they need to actually have cogent evidence to support that. And even where that can be demonstrated, it's not enough to get you off the hook if that's it by itself. Um, I think the other interesting point coming out of that decision is that the upper tribunal confirmed that at least when they're looking at the material detriment test the sum specified in the contribution notice doesn't need to be limited to the amount of loss suffered by the scheme as a result of that act or failure to act. So that link we would have typically expected between what is the loss caused by an act failure act isn't necessarily the case, although that might be a relevant factor. The only cap and the ultimate cap on the size of a contribution notice is the relevant section 75 debt. These are all really important points for us to note. If you have any questions or queries on this decision, please do reach out to the Clifford Chance contact. And Savannah, moving on, I think you've been taking a look at the Part 8 claim brought by scheme trustees against the sponsors of their scheme. Um, and I think that's another pretty unusual case, given it's not every day trustees petition to wind up their sponsoring employers. It certainly is fairly unusual. In summary, in this case, the trustee of the scheme could only unilaterally wind up the scheme on the principal employer's insolvency Evidence provided by the trustee sought to demonstrate that the scheme's two sponsoring employers had been in extreme financial difficulties for years with little current or future business prospects. Uh, the trustee effectively petitioned the court to bless its decision to issue a winding up petition. The court not only agreed, but thought that the extent of the employer's financial problems was actually understated, given the resistance of the employer to providing the trustees with any information. Ultimately, the court approved the trustee's decision. Um, and they were satisfied that the relevant legal test established in Public Trustee E.V. Cooper had been met. And just to flag for our listeners, the test in Public Trustee and Cooper is that a trustee's decision has to be proper, lawful and a reasonable exercise of its powers, i.e. it's one which a reasonable trustee could properly have arrived at, taking into account relevant considerations and disregarding irrelevant considerations. That famous trustee adage we all know. And it's not affected by a conflict of interest. The court also made a number of comments around the extent to which trustees could actually take into account PPF drift 
and the PPF's interest in deciding to issue winding up petitions for the scheme sponsors. Yes, and just another note for our listeners, PPF drift is the term we use to refer to the increase in compensation that is available to members under the PPF the longer that it takes for an employer to suffer a qualifying insolvency event and therefore the longer it takes for the scheme to be assessed for PPF entry. Broadly, that's because the more time that passes, in theory, the more members will reach their normal pension age, which in turn allows more members to enjoy a higher percentage of PPF compensation. Um, There's also the theory that scheme benefits will increase to a higher level than they would have done um, over that period. And also potentially more members may have died um, and that would trigger full survivors benefits rather than the reduced level available in the PPF if a member dies after the PPF assessment date. So it's easy to see why PPF drift would actually be really beneficial for members. Uh, But ultimately, though, the judge here concluded that the prospective availability of PPF compensation was not a relevant uh, factor for trustees to consider. That's where we came out, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. He concluded that considering this would actually be contrary to the legislative intent of the relevant pensions legislation and um, public policy. But he also noted that there wasn't actually a single answer as to whether the PPF would be a relevant consideration in all cases, and that this would actually depend on the context and purpose of the particular power that the trustees are seeking to exercise. Obiter, he noted that, he expect, that he'd expect a similar approach to be adopted in this case in any instance where trustees seek to take advantage of the existence of the PPF as justification for acting in a way which would otherwise be improper, and that the PPF's interest, such as in preventing PPF drift, was similarly not a relevant factor for trustees to take into account. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that. Uh, The last case that I thought it would be good for us to touch upon today is the High Court's decision in the BBC case. Uh, So uh, a reminder for our listeners, this is a Part 8 claim which was brought by the BBC in the context of proposed changes to future accrual within the BBC pension scheme, um, with the aim, effectively, of reducing the BBC's ongoing costs in relation to the scheme. Uh, And this case looked at the wording of the amendment power, which was subject to certain fetters, including that no amendments could take effect in regard to active members whose interests are affected, effectively. Yeah, and there were really two key questions in that case. So what interests meant and whether that included future service benefits and whether the use of the amendment power to terminate future accrual or redesign future service benefits would be an exercise of the amendment power for an improper purpose insofar as either the BBC or active members had not agreed to the changes. Ultimately, the judge held that interest should be interpreted broadly, uh, so it covered members' interest in both past and future service benefits. The judge took the view that it was inescapable that members' rights would be affected if their position would be different before and after an amendment. Yes, and although the findings in this case are pretty specific to the facts of the case, which which is usually the way it goes, the interpretation could actually have a real impact on schemes with similar wording in their rules. So on the second question, the judge held that if a proposed amendment was consented to by the employer and complied with the proviso safeguards contained within it, the exercise would not be an improper purpose, given the purpose of the power was intended to allow amendments, which fulfilled certain criteria. And of course, that in practice just then leads you back to question one and whether the proposed amendment would be permitted within the scope of the amendment power. Indeed. So it remains to be seen whether or not the BBC will appeal the case and whether the decision might be reversed should such an appeal be granted. Thanks both. Those are probably the key points to draw out from these judgments. 
But there are also a number of other interesting topics covered in our latest newsletter, including discussion around the pension regulators' updated super fund guidance, the draft legislation published to abolish the lifetime allowance, and um, progress on pensions dashboards. So do give that a read for more detail. Yes. Well, although we're biased, we definitely think there's plenty in there that's worthwhile to read. And that just leaves us to say thank you for listening. For more detail about the topics discussed, please do take a look at our newsletter or reach out to your Clifford Chance Pensions contact. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance Pensions podcast. Please do follow us on LinkedIn.